This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'd like to begin by reading a poem by Gary Snyder, Axe Sandals. One afternoon, the last week in April, showing Kai how to throw a hatchet. One half turn, and it sticks in a stump. He recalls the hatchet head without a handle in the shop and go gets it, and wants it for his own. A broken-off axe handle behind the door is long enough for a hatchet. We cut it to length and take it with the hatchet head and working hatchet to the woodblock. There I begin to shape the old handle with the hatchet. And the phrase first learned from Ezra Pound, rings in my ears. When making an axe handle, the pattern is not far off. And I say this to Kai. Look, we'll shape the handle by checking the handle of the axe we cut with. And he sees. And I hear it again. It's in Lu Ji's Wen Fu. 4th century A.D., essay on literature, in the preface. In making the handle of an axe, by cutting wood with an axe, the model is indeed near at hand. My teacher, Shi Sang Shen, translated that and taught it years ago. And I see, Pound was an axe, Shen was an axe. I am an axe, and my son a handle, soon to be shaping again, model and tool, craft of culture, how we go on. I just came across a, uh, a video of Snyder reading that poem. Uh, now he's about 90 years old, and the occasion was say, uh, someone translating it into Chinese. And they were re he read his version, and then they read the Chinese translations. It's wonderful to see him, his voice so familiar and vigorous and intact at that age. Uh, Somebody posted it on Facebook, but you can probably find it on YouTube. Uh, it's worth a search. In any case, uh, I'm sure I've discussed this poem here before in the context of lineage. As Snyder says at the end of the poem, how we go on, how something is passed down father to son, 
student, teacher to student, generation to generation. But I thought of it uh, particularly now in the context of uh, our reading of uh, The Body Keeps the Score and how uh, we can juxtapose the picture we get in this poem with what happens in trauma. Because the poem, if you look at it, contains many features that we'll pick out as being particularly disrupted by trauma. Perhaps most literally, you have a picture of safety. That even though we're dealing with axes and hatchets, hatchets being thrown, axes wielded to cut wood, these are potentially very dangerous objects. And yet the whole atmosphere of the poem is one of safety. The father knows how to use these tools. He can teach his son how to use them. He can keep his son safe while he learns. There's agency. Not just is the, not only is the son learning something that the father knows, but he can take initiative. I want to have a hatchet like that for myself. I want to learn how to get fit the hatchet head onto the, the handle. I want to learn how to make those things. That even though this is a potentially dangerous object, I'm going to have mastery of it and control, and I won't be afraid of it. There's the security of the father-son relationship, and that is embedded for both of them in, in something larger, what we might call an intact world. For Snyder, it is the, the knowledge of craft and know-how that he's grown up in, feels confident in, and is able to include his son in. And it's also a bigger world, not just of the know-how of how to make uh, hatchets, but a world in which a quote from Ezra Pound resonates in his ear as he makes it. It's his activity and his son activity is part of a bigger cultural world, a part of a bigger cultural history that gives meaning to what he's doing and puts it into a broad context where he can feel part of something meaningful, has his own role in the continuity of that understanding in that culture. 
So we have these very basic um, qualities uh, resting in the background of safety and relationship and an intact world and a meaningful world and having your place in it. See, I would keep all of those things in mind when we begin to think about what trauma is and how it affects people, how it makes people feel that their world is shattered, that what was once safe is now frightening and vulnerable, how agency is lost and replaced with helplessness, and how the whole sense of the world as a good or meaningful place, which we have our position and can play our part, that whole life world is part of what's shattered. When we look at the uh, book by Van der Kolk, um, I see it as really um, two very different books uh, put together. One is a book on the phenomenology of trauma and is very good with clinical accounts, case histories of how trauma occurs and how people react to it, what effects it has and how eventually they can recover. And then there's a second book about the neurological underpinnings, uh, conditions of trauma, which I think is for a lot of reasons, much more problematic. and. I will not want to particularly go into uh, to that. I would hope what we will do is concentrate on the phenomenology, the um, lived subjective experience of trauma, and not get too far into the uh, neurological weeds. Uh, it's not just that they're complicate, complicated or technical. It's that he um, engages in all sorts of um, levels of explanation that I think are problematic. Um, I don't want to go into that too much, but as you read the book, you'll see very typically he'll say things like, the amygdala jumps to conclusions or... Uh, some part of the brain uh, uh, feels this or decides that or is trying to do this. And he'll say things like, um, emotions give our experience meaning.
if you want to get uh, down into the um, technical problems here, there's a um, a book by Hacker and Bennett called The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience, which is all about what they call the mirological fallacy, the attributions of uh, things that only belong to the whole person, to parts of the person, to their brains or the parts of their brains. Sort of basically the paradigm of my amygdala made me do it. Uh, what that does is muddle up our ways of thinking about causality and agency. Uh, our brains don't think. Our brains don't uh, calculate anything. Our brains don't jump to conclusions. People do all of those things. Uh, and their brains are part of what allow them to do it. But those that language is really properly only ascribable to whole people, not to parts of organs. And, and the whole idea that emotion gives our experience meaning was part of a whole scientific fact-value dichotomy split that um, uh, you know dominated uh, philosophy and science at the beginning of the last century and still continues in, in a lot of forms. What I was trying to do in reading Axe Handles was convey something about how that uh, vignette describes a whole world of meaning. It's a world of relationship, of embeddedness, of skills and crafts that are learned and passed on. The whole world that that describes has meaning due, due to those intact relationships. It doesn't have its meaning because one person felt one way or another while it was all going on and therefore imposed meaning on the facts. That was a whole idea that says science describes the world just as it is objectively, but has no values built into it. And values are something that we emotionally impose on the objective world as if we were not part of it and as if those emotions or our values were not part of what constituted the world for us. This is a uh, another complicated philosophical uh, problem that I probably will bore you with more in the future. Uh, there's another bit of uh, suggested reading uh, called the Women Are Up to Something by a uh, fellow named Benjamin Lipscomb. And uh, it's a wonderful sort of popularizing biography of three women uh, philosophers, uh, mid-century in Oxford. Uh, Elizabeth Abscombe, Philippa Foote, uh, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch. And... Um, they were all instrumental in the resurrection of virtue ethics 
as the antidote to this idea of uh, science describes the world as it is and our emotions just add our uh, our likes and dislikes to it. So anyway, this is a somewhat complicated introduction to van der Kolk, but I would um, sort of uh, give it to you as sort of by putting a little bit of a warning label on the book. Uh, there really is a very good book embedded in there, and, then, and there's also have it surrounded by a lot of stuff that's sort of very problematic, as if what's really going on is going on at the level of the brain rather than the level of the person. And ironically, the way I think the book functions and has functioned for so many people and why it's so popular is that it provides a framework of meaning for people who've been trapped in experiences that seem uh, unimaginable and unexplainable and completely uh, alienated them from uh, ordinary uh, life. See, part of what trauma does is destroy our sense of participating in a shared, intact, lawful world. Something has happened to us that is so extreme that we feel sort of blasted out of normal existence. And it's sort of the, one of the hallmarks of trauma that it feels incommunicable. Nobody can understand what this would have, would have felt like. Nobody can know what I went through. So part of what he's doing in this book is creating a whole system of understanding and meaning that people can now map their experience onto. What happened to them is not unspeakable or totally uh, out of uh, uh, the ordinary. Here are all these cases of lots of people who've gone through what I've gone through. And here's a whole kind of explanation of why it happened and how it makes sense and what you can do about it. So in a way, regardless of the content of his explanations, just providing an explanatory framework, uh, providing examples of other people who have all sorts of analogous experiences, I think has served for lots and lots of people to reconnect them uh, to each other and and to a world that makes sense. Uh, And I think it's the power of narrative not so much the power of uh, neurological explanation is really what uh, what is needed here. People need to feel like their unspeakable experience is actually sayable and can be put into words, that it can be communicated, that it can be shared and understood, and that there's some level in which it makes sense and that their own agency 
is restored first in terms of being able to understand what's happened to them and then be able to think about uh, the narratives and procedures and therapies that have helped people move through these experiences. So once again, they make sense and are connected uh, to a larger intact world. All right, I will leave that uh, preamble there and we will uh, begin the discussion of that book later. Thank you. Mm -hmm.